Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass podcast, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, I encourage you to check out my Amazon author page, where you'll find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books. They're $10 paperback and $2.99 ebook download, also involved... also available on Kindle Unlimited, including my bestseller, NYPD, Laughing in the Line of Duty, which is filled with a lot of funny and interesting stories. Okay, so let's get right to the news. An off-duty paramedic in Florida was arrested last week where he crossed the police tape surrounding the site of a deadly plane crash and tried to film the scene, <laughs> telling the police he was just nosy. Joseph Salvatore Schifiano, 66, was spotted by officers lurking near the fiery wreckage in a mobile home community in Clearwater, Florida, on the night of February 1st, the New York Post explained. So, in my time or era, guys like that we would call a buff, and a buff is often an auxiliary cop, a volunteer fireman, a volunteer EMT, a notary public, anybody that wants to get involved. Now, First of all, most of these people are good people. For whatever reason, they couldn't get hired by a, by a police department or a fire department, so they want to do the next best thing. They're the type of people that will stop on the side of the road and help you change a tire. So I, I have nothing against people that volunteer their time to help. But there's a certain percentage of them, they're not right, and they get involved in things. Like, I'm guessing this guy or his elk will drive around with a police scanner just waiting to see something, to jump jump in with both hands. And, you know, they kind of live their fantasies out by getting involved in these things, by going to the scene of a car fatality or the occasional plane crash. I mean, can you imagine this guy's luck when he heard there was a plane crash in his neighborhood? He probably went racing over there. Some of these guys, these buffs, and some of them can be dangerous. Um, they'll impersonate cops. They'll get fake badges. They'll wear police uniforms. They'll outfit their cars with light packages and, and, and sirens and pull people over. It got so bad that the NYPD, the Internal Affairs Division at one time, I don't, I'm sure they still have it, had a criminal impersonation unit that would look into these people that were getting pulled over or sometimes even they would do home invasions. Now, the word buff strictly isn't limited to civilians who get themselves involved in things and are a little bit over the top. There are cops that are buffs, and but it's a different meaning. So a buff in the NYPD world is a cop that always has the latest equipment. You'll see him in the radio car reading Soldier of Fortune magazine or Guns and Ammo. They carry that Leatherman tool at all times, which is like, a can opener, it'll break the window of a submerged vehicle, it does all these things. There are also the guys that'll blind you because they just bought this 10 million candle watt mag light that's like the size of of this. So cops that are are too into their job as far as equipment is concerned and, 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 and the newest equipment, they're also known as buffs. And in my time, so to get equipment back then, you got, uh, you got your equipment from the NYPD police equipment section. And it's a pain in the ass to get any equipment there because it's, lo- it's located in the basement of one police plaza. So it's a pain in the ass to park. You got to go into one police plaza. You're going to run into 15 people that you know at some point. You go into the basement. Usually, now this is back then, usually the people working there were civilians and they weren't really the most affable people around or you had cops that were jammed up 
and they were miserable. So you asked for a pair of pants and you asked for, you know, a 30, 32 waist, you'd get home and it was a 44 waist. So it was cheaper than going to the police equipment stores. Now, every borough had a couple of civilian owned police equipment stores. And I got to be careful because I don't want to get sued. But if you're from the Bronx and you're about my age and you worked in the Bronx in Manhattan, you're going to know the police equipment store I'm talking about. And it was located in the, and these places, I mean, obviously they're in it to make money. I get that. But the markup on what you would pay for something in the police equipment section in the bowels of 1PP and a police equipment store in the Bronx or Queens, the markup is like 30, 40% more. And there's one particular place in the Bronx. There was a brother and sister. I don't know if they owned it or their family owned it, but the the brother was like Gary Marshall. He sounded just like Gary Marshall, and the sister sounded like Penny Marshall. And, I, and it, it was just like a comedy routine. But those, I'm, I'm sure they still have those stores. And But anyway, so our next story is, new moped crew busted in New York City gunpoint jewelry snatching spree after migrant cell phone squad takedown. Okay, first off, they're not migrants. They're illegal aliens. They crossed into this country illegally. Not for a better life, a lot of them. And unfortunately, they're committing crimes. And we're starting to see this now as they're starting to make inroads into the different boroughs. There was just a story last week about a a bunch of guys running around on mopeds in Manhattan that were assaulting people and stealing their cell phones. So now what it looks like is they've made their way up to the Bronx. Two migrants were collared after a rash of moped raids where they snatched jewelry from unsuspecting New Yorkers, law enforcement said. Luis Tovar Pacheco and Alvaro Martinez, Venezuelans living in the Bronx, were busted after a domestic violence complaint at Pacheco's Laconia Avenue apartment. Okay, so that's up in the 4-7. Um, the arrest come in the heels of Monday, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we're starting to see that these people that have come over here are starting to commit crimes. It's unfortunate, um, but, you know, we're going to have to live with the consequences of this stuff. So that brings me to today's stories. So tomorrow, I'm going on the Cops and Writers podcast with Patrick O'Donnell. He's a retired Milwaukee police sergeant. He's been a guest on this show before. He has a great Facebook page called Cops and Writers podcast, uh, Facebook page, and he's also got the podcast. Tomorrow, I'm going to be with him, and we're going to be interviewing a gentleman by the name of Michael Caparelli. He's the author of Monster in the Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz, once known as the son of Sam. Well, that's probably 99 hours more than I would want to spend with David Berkowitz. But anyway, this guy wrote a book. I think it's it's a hit, and we're going to be interviewing him. So that got me thinking. Um, not that I rubbed elbows with David Berkowitz, but I'm a Bronx kid. That's where David Berkowitz was originally from. Um, and I have some stories of that time period, what was going on, and a couple of interesting NYPD stories that happened to me with David Berkowitz somewhat involved. So let me just, for those of you in different parts of the country or different parts of the world, listen to this podcast. Let me, let me get you up to speed who David Berkowitz, the son of Sam was. He was born Richard David Falco on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. Within a few days, his biological mother puts him up for adoption. He's adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz of the Bronx. Um, From what I've read, according to articles, he had a below-average intelligence and he had behavioral problems in school. He joins the Army in 1971, and then in 74, he gets discharged and he gets a job at the post office. So you've got this guy who's 
been adopted. He finds out he was adopted. He's got, he's got some issues. But from there, he goes on this shooting spree that went on for probably about two years across the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens. And what he would do is he would stalk couples in lover's lanes. He would approach on foot. He would watch them. He was a voyeur. He would watch them making out in the car. or, And then he would slide up to the car, and he carried what was called a Charter Arms forty four Magnum handgun, which is a very powerful handgun. And he would start shooting into the car with no rhyme or reason. These people never saw him coming. And he was a ghost. He would disappear into the night. you got to remember, this is the 70s. There weren't surveillance cameras. There weren't a lot of things nowadays, plate scanners and plate readers. He would have been caught in 15 minutes nowadays, but, you know, he was behind the he was behind the technology curve. So basically he was able to get away with this shooting spree that went on for almost two years. And I was about 10. I'm living in the Bronx with my parents. And it was all over the place. I mean, you couldn't get away with it. And we didn't even have cable TV, but it was on the news constantly it was in every newspaper and two of the shootings occurred i lived in throgs neck which kind of saddles up to pelham bay two of his shootings occurred in the pelham bay section one was on i think bure avenue in the bronx and the other was along there was apartment buildings along the side of the hutchison river parkway in the four five precincts so what winds up happening is this is going on and on and on and um First, the cops, they, they didn't put two and two together that these shootings were connected. Well, that bothered him, so he starts dropping letters at the scenes of these crimes. And then the, I don't think the police initially were releasing the information to the public, which pissed them off. So then what David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, would do is he would start sending letters to this um, New York columnist by the name of Jimmy Breslin with these wild rantings about it was Satanism and it was a death crew and um, it was a dog that was talking to him. This guy Sam's dog was his master and was telling him to to kill these people. So it, it was it was terrible time in New York City history. I'll go into after telling my stories about how he was caught and where he is now. So fast forward 15 years later, I'm a young cop and... I, I'm involved in a narcotic seizure. So in the old days, the lab where they tested, you know, drugs was in the police academy. I, I, it was on one of the upper floors. Let's just say for argument's sake, it was on the eighth floor of the police academy. And the police academy back then was on 20th Street between 2nd and 3rd around the corner from the 13th precinct on, well, it's kind of like the Lower East Side of Manhattan, not far from the FDR Drive. So anyway, myself and a supervisor, we got this box of narcotics. We take the elevator upstairs, and when you get off at the floor of the lab, I think it was to the left, you had um, you had the lab, and then to the right was the ballistic section where they, they checked seized firearms. So I drop off the narcotics, and we come back into the hallway, and we're waiting for the elevator. And on the wall, on the walls by the elevator were these display cases, it was nothing professionally done. It looked like something your dad or you did in like a workshop. It was behind glass, but like wooden stuff. And I'm, I'm looking at they had gun seized. So there was like a Thompson machine gun mounted on the wall and Derringers and stuff. And just, it was cool stuff. I mean, I'm a guy. I was in my early 20s. I found this stuff interesting. And I'm looking and there's this handgun there. And mounted on the wall behind this glass is David Berkowitz's handgun. 
the 44, you know, the 44 Magnum that he used to kill all these people. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm looking at this. Like, here's a part of New York City history. I mean, it's bad, but I mean, how many people get to see this thing? Like, I just, I just couldn't believe it was there. And as I'm marveling at that, I look to the right and they've got the gun that killed John Lennon right next to it. So it's, it's one of those things when you, when you remember the New York City Police Department, it is the greatest show on earth. Sometimes you get to see things that no one else will see. And I couldn't believe it. A couple of years later, I'm a detective. Now, in the old days, when you wanted to get someone's criminal history or rap sheets, it's not like nowadays you can log into a computer and do a triple I search where anyone arrested in the 50 states, you're able to pull up their criminal history. In the old days... You had, it was an all-day affair. You had to jump in a radio car or a detective car and drive down to one police plaza and park, and then you had to go to BCI, and it was on one of the upper floors of one police plaza, and you had to fill out this form. You would submit it, and you could either wait around, or you usually it took time, so we would usually go get something to eat or a cup of coffee, and then it would usually take an hour or two, sometimes more, I mean, depending. And it was these old machines. It looked like something like you would see in a movie, like, like the CIA or something. You've got these wall-to-wall computers with the reels turning. That's kind of what it was like, and it was so hot in it because the computers were always buzzing, and the PAAs, police administrators, they were overworked. They weren't always the nicest, but anyway... One day I'm up there at BCI and I'm waiting for my rap sheet to some guy I locked up for God knows what. And I look at the wall and they've got David Berkowitz's fingerprint card mounted on the wall. And I says, well, look at this. A couple of years ago, I got to see the gun that he used. And, and now I'm looking at his fingerprint card. So later on in my career, I'm working in the auto crime division. And um, there was a detective that sat across from me. We're very good friends to this day. I just actually spoke to him the other day. And um, he's telling me that he bought a condo in Yonkers, and it's in Son of Sam's old building. And I said, you got to be kidding me. He goes, no. He goes, I really got a good deal in it. Now, he didn't get the Son of Sam's apartment. The building went condo or co-op, and... He got an apartment in the building. So I used to break his balls because David Berkowitz said that he used to hear voices that, that commanded him to commit these terrible crimes. So I started breaking my friend's balls, and I used to say, do you hear voices? Like, what torments you? And he goes, do you want me to tell you what torments me, Vic? I said, yeah. He goes, my idiot mailman. I go, what, what do you mean, your idiot mailman? Well, at the time, I didn't know this, but... David Berkowitz lived in 35 Pine Street in Yonkers, New York. Well, after he became famous, people started going in front of the building. They started taking photos. Then they started going into the lobby and taking keepsakes out of the lobby. And then parking was a problem for these people. So, I mean, they got pissed off. So they were able to successfully lobby the city of Yonkers in changing their address to 42 Pine Street, which, sorry, I, you know, it's just an interesting story, and I think that's way past it. Based on this little podcast that 10,000 people are going to show up to this building, please don't. These people have a right to lead their lives. So anyway, I said, so how does that affect you? He goes, well, my idiot mailman keeps, keep, keeps delivering my mail to the wrong address across the street. So David Berkowitz, who was a mailman at one time, his story kind of lived on. And the third and final story I have about David Berkowitz, this is a wild one. So I worked with a guy 
who became a detective in the homicide. He was in Bronx homicide for many years. Sharp as attack, one of the sharpest guys I ever worked with. He was towards the end of his NYPD career. He was solving serial killer cases and old cold cases. Thorough, 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 methodical guy. So anyway, this is 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Him and his partner have to go up to, I think it was Sullivan Correctional Facility, and pull some guy that's serving time for a homicide to pull him out, bring him back to the Bronx, and charge him with another homicide. So they go up there, and uh, you just don't walk into a New York State prison facility and pull somebody out. You, they got to know you're coming. You have to have paperwork. You got to lock up your firearms. You got to go probably see the warden or whoever's in charge of this. They've got to verify the paperwork. They're just not going to pull like a Shawshank Redemption and let somebody walk right out of the prison. So while they're up there, I guess the warden took a liking to my my old partner and his partner. So he starts giving him a tour of the facility, and he's you know going on Sullivan County uh, Correctional Facilities. 5,000-man facility, and he's showing them all this stuff and everything. And my old partner says, um, isn't David Berkowitz the son of Sam? D- doesn't, isn't he housed up here? And he goes, yeah. And then he just the, the warden goes back into the tour, and he's walking around. So my partner waits for another pause in the action, and he says, um, yeah, um, I, how is he as an inmate? Like, he just keeps asking him questions. So finally the light goes off in the warden's head, and he says, Okay, I, I think I know what you want to see. Come on. And he takes them to the other end of the prison, and he basically walks him in, my partner and his partner, into a jail cell. And it's the son of Sam's room or jail cell. And my part, I was asking a million questions when he told me this, and my partner said it was neat as a pin. He said everything was symmetrical. His shoes were all lined up like with a ruler. He said it was clean. He says, but the thing he was taken back in this this room, he said, was there was fan mail, two piles of fan mail. He goes, it looked like a fire hazard. He goes, stacked several feet high. He goes, this guy had a full-time job, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. The guy's doing a million years in the can for, for homicides, and people are writing him letters. He goes, there would be no, he goes, he almost needed an agent to keep up with the amount of mail he got. So he says, so they're just looking around the cell, marveling at it. And he goes, while they're doing that, he notices this fat, pudgy, bald guy walk pacing back and forth, back and forth in front of the cell. And he looks and he goes, is that who I think it is? And David Berkowitz comes up to the cell, you know, uh, the opening, and he says, Warden, is, is there a problem? He's very nervous. And the warden goes, no, 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 no. David, this is Detective so-and-so, Detective so-and-so from Bronx Homicide. Um, I was giving them a tour of the facility, and they just, they just came by to say hello. And he says, Berkowitz went from being a nervous wreck, and what are you doing in my room? He says, it's like you flicked a switch. He goes, he was serious as a heart attack. He looked the two detectives up and down. And these guys back then were probably in their late 30s, maybe early 40s. He looked them up and down. He goes, you guys are a little young to be, be, be here for uh, something I did up in the Bronx. That's all been taken care of. Or something to that effect. And he goes, they, the two detectives just were like, you know, like, what, what did we just witness here? So... You know, David Berkowitz is an interesting character. He's still, I think, trying to tell stories that it wasn't just him. It was a part of a a gang of devil worshippers, this doomsday cult. 
But and there was a there was a famous writer by the name of Maury Terry. He did a, he did a couple of books about it, and actually um, Netflix did a really good series about it. But I'm not really buying in that Berkowitz had help. I think he had friends that might have known about it, and he definitely hinted that he was had friends, and he used their pseudonyms in some of his letters. But I really think that David, in my humble opinion, I think David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, acted alone. So the NYPD caught David Berkowitz through old-fashioned police work. And one of, I think it was his last shooting, or one of the close to the end of his shooting spree, happened in Brooklyn. I think it was Bay Ridge or Bensonhurst. And what happened was he couldn't get close enough to the lover's lane where he wanted to do his shooting. So he had to park a couple of blocks away. And in his haste, he parked in a fire hydrant. So while he leaves the car in the fire hydrant, he walks a couple of blocks, does the shooting, comes back to his car, and takes off. Well, in that time period that elapsed, a couple of cops from a Brooklyn precinct drove by, saw his vehicle parked on a hydrant, they gave him a parking ticket. So now you had, back then, it was probably the largest manhunt in New York City history. I mean, they had detectives working around the clock. They had street crime working, trying to find this guy. So you had a lot of resources thrown into catching this guy. So one of the things they were doing was they were going back to the precincts after a shooting, and then they were pulling the summons boxes out to see if anyone got it in a parking ticket that night. Well, sure enough, parking ticket comes back to some guy in Yonkers, what is a guy in Yonkers, which is about 40 miles away, doing in Brooklyn? As the story goes, a team of detectives go up to this 35 Pine Street. They see his car. Supposedly, they see a gun inside the car. He comes out, and they grab him. Um, in total, David Berkowitz was involved in eight shootings across the New York City area. Um, this, you know, if you ever heard of New York State Legislature enacted as a result of his shootings called the Son of Sam Law, and that was designed to keep criminals from financially profiting from the publicity of their crimes. And when Berkowitz pled, he pled guilty, like within a year to all these shootings, and he made a spectacle of himself in the courtroom. Like, he just didn't say, I plead guilty. He put on these theatrics and started, called one of the victims a whore and, I mean, he went out with a bang. So I think that they figured out that this guy is going to try to get a book or a movie deal. So what they did was they wrote this law that no one in New York can profit off of their crimes. Or if you do, you have to share it with the victims or it goes directly to the victims. Um, in those eight shootings, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, killed six people, wounded seven others. Um, I checked earlier today the New York State Department of Corrections website. And Son of Sam is housed at the Shaw and Gunk, <laughs> say that three times, Maximum Security Correctional Facility for Men in Ulster County. He's got a parole date coming up this May. And as much as New York State Parole Board loves to parole cop killers, I'm guessing the blowback they would get from paroling this lunatic would be too great. So I don't think David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, is getting out of prison anytime soon. It's it's you know it's just a shame the whole thing. I mean, a man was blinded in this shooting spree. I mean, parents lost their children. All these people, all these victims were very young. It, it's it, it's just a terrible, terrible story, and, and the fascination with somebody like this. But you know, unfortunately, it happened. I hope you enjoyed the show, and as always, I want to thank everyone for tuning in especially my friends in Adachi, Tokyo, 
Frankfurt AM, Maine, Hess. I don't know what that means, but thank you, Frankfurt. Middle Sackville, Nova Scotia. Huntington, New York. Uniondale, New York, which was formerly the home of the New York Islanders of Trottier, Bossy, and Gillies when I was a little boy. I think they play in Brooklyn now. I really don't know any of this stuff anymore because I'm, I'm down in Florida. Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was home to former Bridgeport High Lie, where I lost a ton of money, and then we used to go up to Milford High Lie up in Connecticut, which that was a lot of fun. But I don't know. The, uh, once they started legalized gambling as far as with lotteries and stuff, it kind of siphoned away racetracks and High Lie. But High Lie was a lot of fun. If it's in your area, I suggest you go, and it's a lot of fun. Fort Collins, Colorado, and Hobart, Indiana. If you work in law enforcement or have an interesting criminal background and would like to be a guest on the show, please drop me a note on Twitter or Instagram at VicFarre50. If you're listening on YouTube, please, 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 if you like the content, like it. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. The more subscribers I get, the more content I can put out, the more I can get advertisers on the show, and then I can get better guests and content. So if you listen on YouTube, please subscribe and hit the like button. I keep forgetting to say that. If you enjoy the content, check out my Amazon author page and type in my name, Vic, Ferrari Like the Car, where you can preview all my books for free, including, and I'm going to go through them, NYPD, Laughing in the Line of Duty, NYPD, Law and Disorder, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. I don't talk about this book enough. I guess I really should, but it's not NYPD-based. Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. What else we got here? And Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division, which is everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry but was afraid to ask. Chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, and what went on the day-to-day operations of the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. So again, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I appreciate your support, and I'll have another episode out next week. Oh, next week I should have my brother Fredo Ferrari on. He's got some interesting insights and some stories from his NYPD career, and we'll talk about some of the funnier things that happened during my childhood. So again, thank you, everybody, and have a great week.